This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Clip Joint Towns. World War One Spies. Nicole Lindros. And NASA's Bacteria Balloons. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for Players, Run for GMs, and Reveal the Book of the Weird for Everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut, where the rattle of dice is much louder, and the Doritos are $20 a crunch, and it's not Peter Frampton asking you to come alive, it's a scantily clad young lady. These Doritos is rigged, I tells you. Ah, what? These miniatures are are super miniatures, and I paid $50 for them. No, we're not talking about Warhammer. We're talking about clip joints. <laughs> Hives of scum and villainy. Clip joints, fabulous and otherwise, as a thing in your F20 game. Uh, wherever there are rubes with money, the clip joint emerges to separate them from it. Robin, do you want to talk about clip joints briefly? Yeah, so uh, the... Uh, in particular, whole, whole towns that basically function as clip joints. I've been uh, reading a book called uh, The Mark Inside uh, by Amy Redding, and she goes into uh, some of the history of organized con artistry in America, and it really flourished in the uh, late part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century, where you have this sort of uh, countrywide network of bunko artists running the same carefully honed routine to uh, fleece uh, people of their uh, uh, money, particularly uh, flinty uh, farmers and other independent businessmen who thought they were uh, smarter than the uh, uh, city slickers and, and got taken. Uh, and what is uh, really sort of appealing about these as a, a fun place to go and have adventures is that there were whole towns where the, uh, the bunko guys owned the cops and had everything down to a science. And what's particularly funny about these is that these are towns that we now think of as kind of quiet and pacific and not part of the history of American organized crime, like that horrible uh, den, den of iniquity, Denver, Colorado, or Denver, or even worse, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Ah, oh, Council Bluffs. Terrible, terrible place. Think of it as it has been in Council Bluffs where one of the 
the leaders of, of uh, vice and gambling in, in town had uh, his uh, big uh, casino slash uh, brothel sitting on a county line so that it straddled jurisdictions. So whenever there was a raid by one sheriff's department, all they had to do was everybody move over into the other half of the building and they couldn't be touched. <laughs> so it's that kind of sort of delightful uh, uh, scam artistry if you're not the victim of it who has your uh, whole uh, fortune finagled out from under you and under some weird stock scam or whatever it was. Um, but this uh, had me thinking uh, uh, sort of laterally into the idea that, well, in uh, F20, the convention is that the town near the dungeon is kind of a safe place. It's a place that you retreat to. It's your home base. You go back there. You uh, heal up. And in versions of F20 where uh, magic items are a big part of your ability to keep going and you need to get this magic item and this magic item and that one and the healing point, that they're uh, often conveniently placed uh, places where you can sell and trade your magic items. And it's all there for the convenience of the uh, adventurer. If we think about history, though, for a moment, uh, whenever there's been a, a big hole in the ground full of money, uh, like in the gold rush, uh, there are a whole bunch of people who swoop in because they realize that the uh, going and staking a claim and protecting it from bandits or going down into the dungeon to fight hobgoblins and take the gold pieces, uh, both of those things are dangerous and chancy. But what's certain is that there will be some people who strike gold or arrest it from the uh, claws of the various monsters in the dungeon and bring it back. And the real money lies in separating the prospectors and or adventurers from that gold. So uh, what happens if the dungeon has been there long enough to kind of have a gold rush uh, sense to it or have a, a group of uh, uh, fraud artists willing to uh, separate you from your electrum? So Ken, how would you go about introducing a town that is uh, fun to be in while nonetheless violating the player's desires to have the town next to the dungeon be a nice, safe, convenient smart for them. All right, there's uh, a couple of things that clip joints need that are not usually present in F20. Uh, one of them is sexual allure. Even the ones that only sold you watered-down drinks got you in by having an attractive uh, woman approach the customer. In those days, it was only men who overspent on drinks, so there was no reason to uh, cater to the rest of the market. Um, uh, the a beautiful woman would approach you. She would recommend a club that she knew. You would go into the club. You would wind up buying an awful lot of watered-down drinks, and then at the end of the night, the woman would go to powder her nose, and the owner of the joint would show up with a vastly padded bill. I mean, you might have thought that the drinks were 10 bucks a piece, which would be a crazy amount of money even then. And he shows up with a bill for a $1,000 uh, because there was also a corkage fee and a hostessing fee and a table sitting at not being beaten up fee. And at the point where you're objecting to that, the other half of the equation comes in, the enormous bouncers who will kill you. And so you pony up all the money that you have on you or sign an IOU, which is a really terrible thing to have happen, but did happen. And then you are ushered out onto the street by the bouncers and you don't come back and do that again. It was a clip joint because it clipped you of all of your money. Right. So what you need to add to F20 to make this work is the idea that your character is not able to just be utterly logical and uh, tactical about their uh, desires for their activities in town, but they must be um, subject to temptation in the way that real prospectors uh, eminently were in history or real visitors from the sticks were to these uh, towns. And that uh, 
you have to have a, you know, you get some sort of resistance role to doing the dumb thing that the uh, testosterone in your body is telling you to do instead of the listening to the little voice in the back of your head that is going, I think I know how this is going to play out. This is going to be some sort of a clip joint. And then in theory, your characters also have to have been the sort of people who have gone into bars, met a woman there and gone off to enjoy the rest of the night so that you don't immediately say, hold on. A beautiful woman has approached me. That has literally never happened in the history of my character or this game. Obviously it's a scam because by and large, the rubes who got taken at clip joints thought that all they were doing was meeting a prostitute as opposed to getting taken for all their money and not getting to meet a prostitute. I mean, they may have met her, but that right. was it. And, th and that's the extension of the not every hermit is is, is a Rakshasha right. rule of F20. Exactly. That there have to be enough encounters that are uh, innocuous or beneficial so that not so that simply having an encounter uh, with someone who wants to talk to you is, isn't just a signal that they're going to try and hose you. Now, in a uh, F20 game where everyone is uh, played around long enough, they're familiar with sort of uh, the, the tropes, they're willing to allow some backstory and some events to have happened. Uh, they can say, oh, yeah, uh, my character's a well-known uh, lech. He blows all of his uh, dungeon money on ale and whores. And if you then present him with a uh, particularly attractive to uh, their character whore, they will indeed follow them in and blow the money. And they'll say, yep, well, there you go. That's how it happened. Good for me. Uh, and they'll enjoy it as part of the thing. But for most player characters and most players, you need the bouncers as the other equation. And the bouncers have to be tougher visibly and in all other ways than the player character sorts. Because the point of a clip joint is to clip and... If the bouncers are, say, third-level fighters, sure, that lets them clip most people in the fantasy world, but it won't let them clip even second-level player characters, much less third-and-above-level player characters, because the bouncers will show up, the players will smash the bouncers to pieces, and then they'll wreck the clip joint, which is just like every other bar, bar fight, so there's no point in having a clip joint in the first place. Uh, the other thing that you need, because the players will fight, uh, is the bouncers to have a reason not to kill them. Ideally, the protection of the gods, if you're a cleric, there's plenty of ways to do that. But then the bouncers have to have protection because the player characters will seek revenge. And the bouncers uh, have to be under the protection, not just of the owner of the clip joint, but the owner of the clip joint has to be wired into the power structure so that, oh, yeah, uh, don't go there because the clip joint pays 10% of its takings to the duke. And the Duke doesn't like to lose that uh, spare cash that he needs on, you know, for little projects the Duchess doesn't necessarily need to know everything about. And the Duke's brother, who happens to be a dragon, yeah. <laughs> stations himself from time to time at the entrance to the dungeon and checks to see if you have your, uh, your dungeon license. <laughs> and if the Duke has revoked your dungeon license, uh, you're on the, the, the Duke's brother's list. Yeah. So, you know, there's... Uh, uh, you're not quite uh, at the level of uh, dragon fighting yet, so uh, you know that there's a, a threat to having your, your license revoked. There are all sorts of other ways. Also, you can have a, a range of different temptations to suit the different personalities of the players in the game that you can sort of uh, use based on uh, you know historical uh, clip joint towns. Uh, and so another one of those is the fake lottery. You'll find a, a, a street peddler. There's a throng around him on the street. And he uh, takes some gold coins and slips them into these bars of soap. And these bars of soap, of course, are uh, uh, you're itching to, uh, to clean yourself. But you're more 
even more interested when you see, well, this only costs a copper, but I can get a gem or I can get a, an ion stone or something that's in one of these bars of soap. Let's step right up. So this is a real scam where people would be, uh, they'd sell $5 bars of soap that might have a 20 or a $100 bill in them. And of course, somehow by some magical sleight of hand, uh, no one ever went home with a, a 20 or a 5 and they just bought a lot of $5 uh, bottles of uh, uh, bars of soap. Uh, or, you know, there's uh, crooked gambling. There's all sorts of different uh, vices that you could be uh, uh, led astray into into the town. I like the idea that, um, uh, you know, let's say that you've got a, a standard F20 town and the cleric of Mithras is charging a thousand gold for a resurrection. And you're like, well, I don't have a thousand gold. And if I did, I wouldn't pay it for the stupid halfling. Uh, but hey, the cleric of Bithras, who's just as good next door is like, no, a thousand gold that goes against every tenant of Bithras, uh, 400 gold and we'll resurrect uh, your buddy. And it's like, oh, great. And so you bring him in and he's resurrected and he walks off. And then once he's in the dungeon, it's like, oh, the resurrection didn't fully take. He's <laughs> he's super weak. And also uh, the cleric of Bithras has got like a hook in him so that if he gets money, he has to take it back and donate it all to Bithras. And it's like, he's just really grateful to be resurrected. That's what's going on there. So you can play with the magic as the thing that is watered down or screwed with by the salesman. And player characters have in many F20 games have internalized the straight up transfer of money for magic items. So the notion that the magic item guy is not playing fair with them will be maybe a easier sell because they have bought a bunch of plus one swords. So the 10th one being a clip joint scam is maybe not going to, um, uh, oh yeah, that's plus one, but only against condors. Oh, you were fighting other things? Well, sorry. And there could be things in a magical universe that draw in the suckers that don't exist in our world. So the bard who's playing in the tavern could have a hypnotic song that then encourages you to overtip uh, him at the end of the evening and so that you uh, go in and or, you know, the uh, the library where you go for the information. Well, uh, maybe they overcharge for a uh, not necessarily entirely reliable uh, dungeon map. <laughs> you run the um, uh, you run the race handbooks uh, bit from uh, the day of the races. Yeah, <laughs> get your ice cream. Get your tootsie wootsie ice cream. Oh no, that's a, that's a, the old dungeon map. That's not going to go. You need the code book to decipher the old dungeon map. Now, presumably, at some point, the players are, as you suggest, going to want to take revenge. They're want to going to want to go after the duke. Find a way to sideline his brother, the dragon. And you may, in fact, uh, build to a crescendo in which the climactic fight is not a fight with the big boss at the bottom of the dungeon, but is the one in which you finally clean up the town, scour and the shire, drive out the gangsters who are uh, taking advantage of everybody, and that's the big battle. Uh, and uh, then you may, you know, finally we have a nice clean town here uh, where we'll bring in the the honest uh, magic item dealers and. Uh, uh, the, the proper tavern keep keepers. And we're going to ban and, the worship uh, of keep Bithras. It nice and honest. <laughs> and it'll be run by the Adventurers Guild from now on. And uh, nothing could possibly go wrong after uh, the reform minded uh, party uh, brings in 
a, a new uh, broom of law and order. And that can either be the sort of uh, sunset that you end the campaign on, or it begins the new campaign where you're running a town next to a dungeon. And now you have to raise a lot of money because it's not cheap to run a town next to a dungeon and you need to buy uh, magic iron stones to hold back the demons that are there at the bottom of the dungeon. And like, oh, maybe we should uh, hire a dragon to hang out by we the... we knew a guy who was really yeah. good at getting we money. We need enforcing our dungeon licenses. These chumps uh, that come in from the Riverlands, where everyone's chumps anyway, they just got all that money. Ah, oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Everybody who's a neutral good, put up your hands. Yeah, you guys run the town. You guys run the town. We'll, we'll look the other way. Right. Uh, well, the one thing that we can't uh, look the other way at is the uh, needs of our uh, beautiful and uh, and splendid advertisers. So uh, let's unfurl a lovely uh, commercial that is perfect in all of its uh, outlines and then head on in to our next segment. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pilgrim Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The sound of the metal door clanging behind you and the unmistakable smell of rotting paper in the air tell us that we're headed into a tradecraft hut that is an archival tradecraft hut that reveals the secrets, perhaps the secrets that are already just out there on the shelf of a long time ago, because Patreon backer Elias Helfer says, I feel like I've heard a lot about espionage during the Cold War and also in World War II. But what about World War One, Ken? Uh, this request is a uh, request for a 101 on World War One, specifically World War One espionage. What What are the first 15 minutes worth of stuff that we need to know about <laughs> World War One espionage? All right. The first 15 minutes worth of stuff that you need to know is that that's about all the stuff that we know. Uh, World War One is remarkably under-researched, and espionage within World War One is even less researched. Partly because a lot of the relevant bureaus burned all their records in the interwar period or had them seized by uh, political enemies of one kind or another. Like like they'd heard of research and didn't want people doing any of it. Yes, like they suspected they'd gotten up to badness. The other thing is that because World War One is so tied up in the mythology of the spy... And we've talked previously about the spy panic in Britain set off in the 1900s, early 1900s. The same sort of spy panic happened in France. It happened in Germany. Um, it uh, happened in Russia, although it was harder to tell from the general Ukraine paranoia of everybody. And so 
much of what was in even the official records that have survived is probably butt covering and lying in order to justify the budget increases that they got after the spy panic. And perhaps some genuine paranoia as well. Yes. The Okrana certainly had reason to be genuinely paranoid. They just took it to Okrana level lengths. And I suppose since the most important thing about spying in World War I is that the head of Serbian military intelligence started the war by having his black hand uh, soldiers assassinate the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Maybe the various uh, spy agencies kept their heads up down a little more than they did in World War II when it could be pointed that, no, it wasn't us that did it this time. It was that other guy, the the corporal. Right. So when you hear it argued that uh, spy operations almost never changed the course of any war. This spy operation caused the war. And right. uh, guess what this war is called? Oh, yeah, World War One. Now, um, that said, like most uh, spy operations, having started the war, spy operations then did virtually nothing to alter its outcome. Uh, I guess the closest thing you could say to an effective and uh, spy operation in World War One was the sort of covert ops operation run by T.E. Lawrence to start the Arab Revolt. And T. Lawrence, uh, perhaps not coincidentally, was a gifted self-publicist as well as having a gifted American publicist uh, hang out with him. So he gets lots of coverage. So if you're looking for the Arab Bureau in Egypt, especially at the time that Lawrence was running it, and to a lesser extent, just after the war, when Gertrude Bell is setting up Iraq against the wishes of literally everyone in the region, including the guy she made king of Iraq, there is a plethora of data on that. But Lawrence has been described, perhaps accurately, as the sideshow to a sideshow. And the Arab revolt, while impressive, probably did not do an awful lot to change the ultimate fate of the Ottoman Empire. So this uh, dearth of information, of course, creates a wide space to make things up. Yes. And uh, th- that space was filled during the war itself as people made up stories like uh, this exotic dancer named Matahari is a horrible spy who is feeding the German military high command our secret French information. And that's why we can't win the war is because of this spy. And Matahari was probably no better than she should be. But even if she was a spy, she was singularly ineffective and was working in what they call open source intelligence. The better spy networks were the ones behind German lines run by uh, the Belgian and French citizens, basically the resistance avant la lettre, that uh, kept track of railway movement and tried to rescue uh, downed pilots and prisoners of war. And that's very similar to the resistance in France during World War II. La Dame Blanche is the largest of those networks. It had about a thousand people uh, working for it. And every now and again, the Germans would uh, capture someone who was running it. Specifically, there is a nurse uh, named Edith Cavell, who was part of one of those spy networks, and they executed her for for being a spy and made her sort of a martyr during and after the war. The Germans did an awful lot of shooting of people who were accused of spies and ever more as it went east, just like the Germans would do the, the time in the sequel. So they were in one year in, I believe it's 1916. They shot 400 people in one department in occupied Poland. So you can tell the sort of degree to which they are taking active measures against a perceived threat, but whether that perceived threat is what we would more consider partisans than what we would consider spies remains an unknown quantity because the archives in in question have probably been 
sanitized by fire and bureaucracy. The, uh, the, the signals intelligence was big in World War One. So room 40 decrypted the German, uh, naval code. And so, uh, by finding the code books on the cru- cruiser Magdeburg, not in the Alan Turing way, but the Germans then didn't change the naval code. So that's why Jutland was a draw, people. The other great spy operation that cha- may have changed the course of the war was the Zimmerman telegram, which there is a, a lovely book by Barbara Tuckman about, which was a telegram sent by the German foreign minister Zimmerman to Mexico saying, Hey, Mexico, why don't you get into World War I and you can take California and Texas back? And Room 40 decrypted that and then assured that the Americans would find the decrypted version and caused uh, American uh, public opinion, which at the time had been pretty neutral, to begin moving against Germany. Other things that caused American public opinion to move against Germany were the Kaiser's agents in America, of of whom there's also some information, uh, who were going around trying to sow glanders into the American uh, horse ranches to prevent America's strategic horse capacity from being used for the Allies, and then blew up a arms depot at uh, Black Tom in New Jersey in what was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history because it was an arms depot where we were stockpiling war material to be sent to uh, support the Allies. This before we were formally in the war, but well after we decided that selling uh, uh, war material was a great way to make money. Uh, So, German sabotage operations in America are fairly well known, fairly well covered. Zimmerman Telegram is famous, but in terms of the sort of straight up spy versus spy stuff, we have, for example, the information that Algernon Blackwood and Somerset Maugham uh, both ran the same spy station in Switzerland, which probably ran railroad intelligence of just knowing when the trains were being moved, but might have run other intelligence as well. And then just as the war is ending, when uh, the uh, Tsar is overthrown by the Bolsheviks, British intelligence does activate uh, Riley Ace of Spies and Somerset Maugham, um, and no doubt a cast, a cast of other completely unsuitable characters to go up and try and make some sense out of that and possibly get rid of Lenin and restore the Mensheviks to power. So that's a whole handful and a half of, of uh, plot threads. Yeah. And uh, so I think... Uh this will help Elias uh, get started uh, getting his World War I uh, spy network up and uh, engaged in uh, pulp, pre-pulp era, pulpish, pre-pulpish, pulp avant lettre, as Ken might say, activities, and uh, allows us to move on to the next segment. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles 
oodles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This podcast would be running and playing on a farm upstate were it not for the support of Patreon backers exactly like Hyperlexic, Jason Denon, Frank King, Ruth Tillman, and John Buckley. So welcome once more to Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. Uh, this time we are talking to Nicole Lindrus of Green Ronin. Is that the correct pronunciation? It is the premise pronunciation. So now, no, it's not the so correct. So it's not. It, it is correct, um, but I don't expect people to see that word and necessarily know to pronounce it that way. So, so I'm saying that I, I speak you, you, it both you, ways. You, you support Chris and his decision, but you don't insist on that with others. Correct. Okay. Right. Just like in my early days of working in the game industry when it was Ars Magica or Ars Magica. I don't carry the way, give me your money. Just buy the game. Pronounce <laughs> it how you wish. So let's start off with uh, what's new with uh, Green Ronin. What, what groovy things should people be uh, checking out uh, in the uh, weeks and months after Gen Con? Oh, you are so one day early for our big announcement. We have a big announcement that's going up Well, tomorrow. this is not going to drop. This is not dropping until but weeks from now. But can I trust now. you? Can you? Can you trust us? <laughs> can you? Uh, okay, this is the scoop. You're getting the scoop. The scoop is that we have the literary license to do an Expanse uh, role-playing game. Wow, Ooh. cool. So we are doing the Expanse, and it will be uh, powered by age. And when? what's your uh, her- release horizon 2018. 2018. <laughs> That's a big, long, broad year, right? And so people have lots of opportunity to, for, to wait for the call to action on that one. Yes. <laughs> so if you go and read all the novels between now and 2018, so they're ready to jump in and play, right? Correct. Yeah. And you said literary license, which means uh, not the TV show license. Correct. Correct. So we will not be referring to... Repurposing their photo art. Right. Right. We won't be inviting the cast of Uh, the TV show to participate. Well, perhaps they will will hear this and be sad and want to come participate anyway, just as simple fans of Nicole and Green Ronin. (laughs) They uh, are welcome. I'm sure that's what they're They're going to do. They're welcome. And if people want to get a, a... Green Ronin thing in their hands sooner. What what should they go pick up that's new and groovy that's that's out soonish? Uh, we are releasing uh, the, uh, the the Critical Role Taldori campaign setting here at Gen Con, and uh, expect to be flooded with people. Um, it is it is by far the most popular thing we've ever put out. It's not even quite out yet. <laughs> um, so you've already alluded to the fact that you have a. Uh, History in the in the game industry uh, that goes back just as far as ours does, uh, as someone who creates and, and works behind the scenes to make things happen. Thank and you. And so I thought that we would uh, talk about the life and career of a game exec. That sounds great. So before we get to the how would anybody do this today, <laughs> what, what was your path to the executive suite yeah. of, uh, of Green Running? Uh, I, I started out as a, a high school play tester asked by some college friends to come play test their game. 
and then I started playing the game regularly with them, and then uh, then they needed help balancing the checkbook, and so I did a little of that. And, and what game was this? This was that uh, alluded to Ars Magica game from Jonathan Tweet and Mark Ryan Hagen, uh, Lion Rampant originally. And then it became, uh, you know, Nicole, I'm really bored with layout. You want to learn about layout? Here's PageMaker. Here's AutoFlow. These are widows. We don't like those. These are orphans. We don't like those. Go to it. And this small group of people became an incredible incubator for the tabletop <coughs> industry. Yes, quite a bit. Yeah, Mark went on. Uh, with Lisa Stevens and myself, and did um, uh, a merger with White Wolf Magazine, the Wick Brothers, and that launched uh, White Wolf and Vampire and the whole World of Darkness uh, thing. Um, Jonathan went on and did uh, all sorts of avant-garde work with Atlas Games, and eventually became a developer at uh, Wizards of the Coast, and uh, Lisa um, followed people to Wizards of the Coast and became one of the early employees, which allowed her to spin off and start Paizo Publishing, publishers of Pathfinder, and for a while the, the curators of what was left of the gaming magazines Dungeon and Dragon. So people are going to hear this and go, the secret to becoming uh, management in a tabletop role-playing game is to be in the right place at the right time, <laughs> and that's like in 1991 or something? <laughs> 19, get, uh, get in a time machine and go back to the late 80s. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Failing that. You can't really recreate the way that I got into the industry. But. Right, and so and that's, I think, true of everybody. Is that, it's true. The, that you make a Nicole Lindrew-sized hole in the industry and then fill it. Uh, but what advice would you give to uh, uh, people, to, to a young uh, person who reminds you of, of the Nicole of yore, who wants to do what you're doing, what would you recommend that they learn or do? I'm a terrible mentor because uh, I did so much on-the-job training, and I was, was just thrown into situations that came up. I, I uh, recognized that somebody needed to do it, and so I started to do it. Maybe that's how you do it. Maybe that's how yeah. you start today. Look for a deep end to be thrown into. Yes. <laughs> like, like uh, identify um, something that you feel you can handle and that you recognize other people aren't. There's a lot of like gig economy startup mentality today that allows for that in a way that didn't exist then, but it kind of recreates that situation of just being around. I mean, you have to be more aware today and kind of place yourself in that void. So how is your job different now than it was, say, five years ago? Well, um, I was able to hire a couple of people to, to divide my job and allow me to do more things that I actually like to do. So I was able to carve off customer service, which is a constant irritant to a fighty person like me. <laughs> because I can never have to be more diplomatic than I would normally. Yes. Customer service in many companies does not rhyme with the clack of a shotgun. <laughs> so. Or so I understand. <laughs> So for some people, it comes a little easier to, right, yeah. to um, put themselves in that middle spot. I have to st 
struggle with it. It's harder for me. Um, and I can do the job, but I really, really like not having to do the job. Yes. So that has allowed me to take on a few more project management-oriented things this year, which made me really happy. I was really starting to feel a little divorced from the creative work that was going on around me. I didn't have, didn't have time to even look at the manuscripts anymore. Right, because you were demonstrating competence, therefore being given the real job. Therefore being punished. Yes. yes. <laughs> I've had this discussion where I, I literally said to my best people, like, you need to let me know if I am punishing your competence by, <laughs> by saying, I know that I can count on Joe to get this done, so I'm going to ask Joe to do it, rather than insisting that other people step up, uh, even if it, it is not as easy and good for me. Um, I don't want to be that boss that ends up saddling my best writer with a project management gig that he doesn't want. Right. And that's, and that, I guess, basically is, is sort of half of management, is knowing when that uh, the, the, the fast and pragmatic answer is still not the right answer, that you have to also spread the load out or you have to make sure that the person who is, uh, uh, you know, you don't burn the guy out or, or the one out by, you know, overloading them. Um, you, you have to make all these sorts of decisions that I am unfitted by nature and uh, talent to ever make, but you seem to sort of moved into it, fallen into it? Did you claw your way to it? Did you climb to it? Is that the Nicole dream to manage, or like all of us, are you just a, a frustrated lotus eater who wants to lounge around and think beautiful thoughts? <laughs> my, I've my met far people who like management, is what I'm trying so, to say. <laughs> And are you one of those strange and uh, magical creatures, or are you... Um, uh, so, kind of. I yeah. like taking care of my people. I like pairing them up and seeing them do well. I like setting people up to succeed. And, uh, and I get very frustrated when I can see a problem and the solution and the people who need to come together. Um, so it is as if, say, a one James Wallace wandered into Gen Con one day with a game and said, I was thinking of bringing this to White Wolf. And I say, ha-ha, uh, I see a problem here that is going to be a poor match for you, but I know the right guy for this, and introduce him to one John Nephew. Um, the magic happens. And then they succeeded. They, they got along, they did their thing, they had success. So is it, is and it, and it, that was a little game called Once Upon a Time. It is, yes. yes. And so I, I, very early on, I started to notice that I did have a little bit of a talent for putting people together in the ways that, that allowed them to, to work well. Is it, is, it a, is it a sort of a second sight? You just can see talent and see personal <laughs> ability? Or is there a way that you have gotten better at it or at least faster at it over time, or is it just a matter of now that the legend of Nicole has grown, and you say you should work on this project with them? They're like, yes, um, and uh, no back talk. What's the what's what? What's I your still get back talk. Oh, well, without back talk, there wouldn't be any fun. Um, but but is is your is is it uh, a thing of just you you always had it, and people have just started recognizing it, or is it you built that skill over I, time by doing it? I think I had a natural aptitude to see where things could, like, where, where possibility was. Right. The aptitude to see these possibilities that are sometimes not obvious to other people. Um, I don't think I have any particular eye for talent, exactly. Right. But uh, but I, I have been able to put people together to work on projects or pair people with projects or, or not. Nicole has no eye for talent. It's a pure coincidence that she only has worked with hugely talented people. <laughs> pure coincidence. Roll of the dice. No eye for talent, Nicole Lindris. 
You heard it here first. That's right. So please don't come and ask me to judge if you're talented, because I will not know. I will not ask that. (laughs) (laughs) My pledge to you, Nicole, I shall never come up and ask, am I talented, Nicole? Please tell me. Hold you to that. Yeah, you should. Yeah. (laughs) Wise. Um, But I do think that once I realized that that was the role that I was taking on and that I was having some success in, in getting the results I wanted, that I have tried to like learn actual management skills and not just, you know. Because we don't necessarily always associate tabletop gaming and people skills. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, for some reason. <laughs> so what, what would you point to as something that you uh, learned that helps you manage people and deal with them and bring out the, the best in them? What, that what that maybe they, future they... Nicole could also work to learn as opposed to uh, hope to have been born under a magical star as you apparently were. <laughs> yes, I, I have no... Uh, be born in the right place at the right time. Um, yeah, that's Just what it is. Luck of the draw. Yeah. Uh, what was the question? The what question was, what have you learned about, learned about learned and people wrangling? Right, yeah. Okay. Um, first, that uh, people need to feel that they're being heard. Even if you're not going to uh, be able to follow through on their idea. Uh, we've had very good luck with Green Ronin in putting people on the thing that they want to do because they have expressed an interest in it and then allowing them to do that work. And, uh, and having very open democratic um, feedback um, to, to work together towards something. It's all uh, very non-hierarchical and non-traditional, except for in the end, ultimately, there are the three owner bosses. And as long as everybody understands that, that there are the three owner bosses who are sometimes just going to say, we have to do it this way. Now, that's another interesting question. Yes. You've got a triumvirate. Yes, we who do. Are, and you're... Th- Theoretically equal? Yes. And the other uh, so far unnamed owner boss is? Hal Mangold. Our, our pal Hal. Uh, so how do you negotiate between three people to all speak with one voice? We have very clear um, areas of expertise. So Hal is everything art and layout. He is the ultimate boss on the printing and the uh, uh, we will we'll fight him sometimes, say, Hal, don't we have enough really beautiful art that shows a dragon somewhere that we could reuse, <laughs> that we don't have to get yet another I, one? I literally just heard Hal respond to you in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never won that argument, yeah. not once. Well, um, you might want to try a flanking attack next time, because <laughs> that was just marching right up into volley fire, that one. I just wanted to use a very clear example. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and and we, we, he is very good at his job. We're very lucky that he is exactly the kind of person that, um, when given the, the barest parameters, understands what we're asking for and has given it to us for the last 17 years. So... So it's, it's working in parallel rather yeah. than working as a committee that yeah, has to yeah. sign off on everything. That's right. Um, Chris is the ultimate authority on design. Uh, obviously, Hal and I both have opinions on it and understand design, but uh, um, Chris has very good instincts and works the closest with all of the developers and the freelance writers and the conception of all the products. So when the ultimate decision for something like that is made, it he gets a... He gets slightly more weight, even though in theory we're all equal. If Hal and I were both ganged up on him and really fighting him on it, uh, we would win. 
Well, uh, aforementioned flanker. Yes, yes I, I, again, I can see the, 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 the rules text right there <laughs> that, that describes exactly how you would win. Um, Luckily or, for me, I take care of a whole section of, of the business that, uh, that they don't care about. And so if I say this is the way it's going to happen or I've already got the plans in place, they, they never care enough to fight. Right, and, and part of the secret <laughs> of being a professional on a project is knowing what you don't care about. Right. And it's like, uh, you, so you, you know that you've grown up when it's like, I don't want to have an opinion about that. I got enough stuff on my plate, just that plate can go and take care of itself. Some of the worst development gigs we've had have been um, doing a, a, working as a design house for some other company that doesn't work the way that we do. Right. <laughs> and yes. so some other theoretical company that may be organized in a less structured fashion or a more chaotic fashion. <laughs> So, some very large companies might be a large company. Might might not. Hard to say. <laughs> Could be a coastal company. Might have some might boards of directors. One of the different silos that fight each other. <laughs> yeah. Who can who can understand what it might have been? Uh, they uh, so 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 those places have um, given us feedback sometimes where it's been either it seems very arbitrary or. They have a certain number of people who have some sort of ultimate authority, so we'll be working on it with underlings supervising a thing, and then it gains the attention of Sauron, and next yes. thing you know, we have to rip that out and start over again, um, because there aren't these clear areas of authority, I think. That, right. That, now, that it, everything could be derailed if at the last minute uh, the, the layout people came in and said, oh, we're not allowed to use that font that you've chosen. You have to lay out the whole book in a different font. That, that raises the parallel example of Sauron Eyes, you've worked with tons of licensors. Yes. Right? You, Green Ronin has done a lot of really great license games, uh, big computer, uh, computer game companies. You have the Song of Ice and Fire game for a while. Uh, maybe you still do, perhaps. Selling them at the convention? Selling them at the convention as we speak. That was a plug. That was not me forgetting. <laughs> Look at that. That's, that's podcasting. Um, and Having personally worked with licensors in the past, if your problem is Sauron, why would you step into that trench yet again? Because <laughs> licensors are nothing but Sauron, in my experience. Even the largest, fattest, and laziest of them, the Paramounts, can occasionally just sort of topple into your life and destroy everything, even if they don't mean to. But you, you go back after that again and again. Is there a, a reward artistically to working with licensors, or is it just a, well, Game of Thrones is going to sell because kids love Westeros? Well, there's a little bit of, uh, like, like we're all kids. Yeah, right, so, exactly. So one of the first licenses we got was The Black Company or Thieves World, mm -hmm. one of those old fantasy novel series right. that the boys just liked. Yeah. The guys on the team were just like, oh, I remember those books, from mm -hmm. the, you know, that setting, and that would just be really cool. I just really want to do that. Right. Um, with, uh, with the Dragon Age, they actually came to us because of our history of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it makes sense because, uh, we, like, we did the DC license yeah. for Mutants and Masterminds because if you have the best-selling superhero game on the market... You it makes maybe sense have the best to, superhero universe you know, on the market as well. Be able to put out official Superman stats right. is okay. Yeah, that is cool. Okay. But is there is there a, a thing that is enjoyable about it besides just the, the sheer thrill of right, typing the word Romulan and knowing it's official, <laughs> which is was my you know thrill. great yeah. thrill when I was doing uh, Star Trek? And then is there a specific beauty to the dance with licensors from the management perspective as opposed to the artistic perspective of it, just getting to write, oh, I got to write Cersei and I was paid. 
It's, uh, you know, it really is individual. We've had some licensors that are like, yep, go ahead, take it, do the thing, tell me when the check's coming, mm -hmm. um, you know, I trust you to do games, so do the game. Right. And then there are some of them that are very um, legalistic and, and come back with these rulings about what we can and cannot do mm -hmm. that don't seem to make any sense, but we have to do it that way because they're the boss. Yes. Well, sadly, the thing we cannot do is talk to you all day, Nicole, so we've uh, stolen enough of your time and are very grateful for you to stop by amid the audio chaos and chat with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Nicole. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the Maker Killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. The Bubbling Beakers and the Crunch of Data tell us it's once more time to have fun with science. Fun! And this fun with science comes at the request of Patreon backer Alan Wilkins. Uh, who uh, sent us a, a clipping, as it were, we'll put this in the show notes, in which it turns out that during the eclipse, the eclipse, the aforementioned eclipse in which uh, Ken had his uh, recent adventures, uh, was being uh, monitored by NASA and bacteria. Uh, they uh, sent some, uh, the story goes, and it can't possibly be that any inconsistencies are bits of logic that we as as non-scientists obviously find nasa and balloons have never combined to start an entire industry of conspiracy and elliptomy that's exactly. never happened it's never happened never never gonna happen yeah and and it's not like we're going to misunderstand and misreport things until they're weird that's not no, gonna happen that's that we would be violating our oath as podcasters right so the cover story is uh that during the eclipse they sent up some balloons which a had cameras on them to track cloud formation during eclipses. Now, how long was the eclipse? It's like two and a half minutes of totality, right? Right. So immediately right there, as a non-scientist who's poking holes in this in order to make up aliens, I see a flaw number one. Two and a half minutes of cloud formation, that's nothing. Probably no clouds are going to form in two and a half minutes. That's not very much. I mean, it was apparently enough to spoil a lot of people's eclipse, but uh, yeah. it, it's, it's not a lot of data. Right. And uh, secondly... They uh, apparently sent up some uh, bacteria with this uh, set of balloons that went up to 80,000 feet, or so it was alleged ahead of time. So this uh, particular uh, supposed bacteria is called the uh, Penobacillus zerothermodurans. And even those of us who don't speak Latin can get the last part of that name and go, oh, these are badass bacteria that uh, can withstand uh, severe changes in temperature. And again... In a, what is clearly a flimsy cover story, uh, they said that, oh, well, we're, we're testing these bacteria to see how well 
they survive uh, when uh, up in these balloons because Earth, 80,000 feet up during an eclipse, is obviously the same as Mars, so that we can make sure that these bacteria are not going to survive on the balloon. Therefore, when we go to Mars, the bacteria are not going to go there and cause problems on Mars. And so that's the that's the putative story of these balloons. But uh, as and, and that is a more ridiculous cover story, just speaking as a civilian with no elliptonic interest in this at all, than the uh, weather station one. Because if it's really resilient bacteria, hey, news alert, two and a half minutes ain't going to kill it. Uh, two, two and a half minutes doesn't even kill, like, E. coli, right? It doesn't even kill normal boring bacteria. And we have things that go higher than 80,000 feet. Stick yeah. those bacteria in there. See if they, like... Survive going up to, uh, to the to the space station. Right. Yeah, put them, put them on a satellite, see if they survive. So we know there's cameras on the balloons. We know that these supposed science experiments are nonsense. So Do you want the Andromeda strain? Because that's how you get the Andromeda strain. The Andromeda strain. Uh, well, that, that's, uh, that's the easy one. And then, of course, uh, could be tulpas. There you go. I just made my uh, weekly <laughs> made your five uh, chunk bucks. of money from the Tulpa uh, Studies Institute. Uh, but they do good work there at the TSI. Yes, exactly. But I suspect uh, that uh, those cameras are actually pointed down at the people uh, writhing in the uh, sleep-deprived uh, bourbon vapors of the eclipse and uh, trying to find out what exactly was going on with them and what eleptonic forces were coursing through the crowd and what uh, changes that the eclipse made in people's uh, uh, crowd activities, their formations on the ground, and that it was really uh, a uh, aimed at uh, looking at us as a as a species when we're uh, under these uh, uh, weird conditions. And why would you conduct such experiments? Well, perhaps uh, there's some plans to blot out the sun uh, on a uh, on a more permanent basis, undoubtedly to render us more compliant. That sounds more. It is. It is mankind's oldest dream to blot out the sun. Yes. Uh, my theory is as follows: that during the eclipse. You can, and remember, the bacteria are attached to what they call thin aluminum coupons, and they use the word coupons, which means, yeah. what does it mean? It means something you exchange for something else of value. So, the bacteria are attached to these coupons made of aluminum, or so they say, but they might have been made of electrum or some other magical or metal. The bacteria are connected to the balloons, to the cameras, to the eclipse, to, as you point out, the viewers on the ground, who, I suspect, from 80,000 feet, look to those cameras the same size as bacteria. So what's going on is NASA is engaged in very specific soul-stealing activity because you know the cameras steal your soul. That's been proven. The yeah. Pacific Islanders have known that for for centuries. Um, uh, we're only now appreciating their timeless wisdom. Right. And we know that people are increasingly soulless in right. the age of the smartphone. Right. And the so you got to do is look at Instagram. And, and so people are, um, uh, are, are standing there open targets for eclipse-based soul stealing. So the cameras are transferring either all of or a bacteria-sized sliver of our souls to those bacteria, and those bacteria will then be put under magical stresses by NASA, by NASA's uh, chief magical division, to determine human responses to magic or to cast large-scale influence magic on eclipse viewers and eclipse standard outers in uh, during that era. Because the, the the qualities of people who go out to an eclipse, they're uh, they're very curious, they're yes. uh, easily suggestible. It's they're like, sleep oh, sleep deprived. Sleep many of deprived. them. Uh, they possibly had some bourbon, and uh, but but more uh, importantly, they're uh, both suggestible and adventurous. Exactly. So, 
uh, undoubtedly, this is, uh, and those are all qualities that you want uh, when you are marshalling a psychic army. And uh, so I think clearly the question is not, are we afraid that our bacteria are going to interfere with Mars? And of course, there, there's, you've always got to put a tell in there, right? There's always right. someone writing the press release who either subliminally or as a sort of a, a wink of the eye to, to those in the know will give you a little clue. So the Making manifest Mars, that which is hidden. Yes. Uh, and so the mention of Mars tells us that this is uh, preparation for either an action against Mars or more likely as a defense against a, a Martian attack. Against so perhaps, aliens. Yeah. So perhaps the, the blotting of the sun is, is uh, in preparation for the fact that we know the Martians, when they come, will try to blot out the sun, especially because by the time they get here, we're going to be more and more reliant on solar power. Right. They're, they're just waiting for Earth's economy to, to switch from uh, safe, friendly, terrestrial, uh, Mother Gaia-loving fossil fuels to the hated energy of masculine Apollo, which they can then cut off at the source with their right. sun-blotting devices. And also, they're probably, you know, they're thinking of things in a Martian timescale, as is NASA. Right. Uh, this is a preliminary experiment. Because NASA's got the uh, the Martian brains from the Grover's Mill landing already, so they know how the Martians think. Exactly. And they, they know, uh, you know, and it's good that they're contemplative long-term planners, because uh, after all, what took care of the Martians the first time they came here? Bacteria. Bacteria. Yep. Um, I That's think what it was. I think it's obvious in retrospect. And yep. so uh, the uh, the Martians are looking for ways to a uh, kill off their hated foe, the bacteria, and b to uh, you know incidentally to, to get rid of us as well. So if we understand then that the Martian invasion is one in which uh, we are of some interest, but really they want to get revenge on on the bacteria of Earth, uh, we got to make sure that we have you know a new, more exciting, tougher generation of bacteria. That is bacteria more- that have human soul parts and can operate um, as covert warriors behind the blood-brain barrier. Exactly, and have all of the uh, ambition and adaptability of uh, people, yet all of the Martian-killing capability of, uh, of bacteria. Of a bacteria, exactly. So, I, I guess now that I've talked my way through it, it's probably not a sinister thing that, that NASA is doing per se, unless you're a, a Martian. And that's or unless you were one of those people whose soul got clipped. That's a little bad. Well, if... But they're just taking a, a bacterial speck of everybody's soul, right? That's well, that's just taxation. Yeah. I know you Americans right. are against that, but I'm again, I'm again it. No soul clipping without representation. That's what I say. Well, you were there, so they they have part of you on a, one of their little coupons. Well, yeah, that's that's why that's why it's it's a personal issue, Robin. Personalize right. the issue. Yeah, but that's okay. The so the Martians show up. They blot out the sun. They have their antibacterial weapons. They have entire ships full of Martian Purell, but they face a bacteria that is, is powered by your spirit. Right. Your, your, it has your vast uh, knowledge. You know, they um, undoubtedly, they sort through all the bacteria and find out, you know, which, which soul parts go where. So you're going to, mm-hmm. your soul part is going to go in the big database. And so you're going to be able to provide all of this historical and, and more important leptonic context. Also, uh, getting the Martians drunk. I think that will become crucial. Exactly so. Well, they, they were ready for the bacteria, but not for the bourbon. Well, and of course, bacteria are uh, indispensable in the fermentation process. Exactly. That, that brings about alcohol. So I, I would think that uh, the threat of uh, Martians who want to come and uh, destroy all the bacteria and therefore... Uh, all of the alcohol, I think that you would be willing to give up a scintilla 
of your uh, soul to lead the fight against them. I would have been, I would have been very willing if someone had just asked me, but finding about afterward feels like a violation, Robin. I can't expect you to understand that with your tugging the forelock to the queen that you do. But that's and the magic beaver the just showing up. Mentioned Mars. That right. was, that was your, they expect that was my notification. The, one that they, the whole cover story is just their terms of service consent form for you. Right. So, if you, so since I probably clicked on Gizmodo County, at some you didn't point, tick the box, that's not right. on them. Right. I got it. Okay. That's what it was. It's because I got a space phone. It was probably in the terms of service there. Yeah. Because you know that Google was behind it. Exactly. Right? Google's behind it. And uh, initially, when you officially first got your space phone, you were like, I'm going to be very careful with a space phone. I'm not going to get any food or any gunk on it. Mm-hmm. And then what happened like within 12 hours of that vow to yourself? I, w- I, was, I was eating food and touching my space phone. And guess what got on the space phone? The, yeah. The right. bacteria that... Uh, they needed to run the tests on to make sure that it was indeed the the true essence of Ken Height that they were seeking. And so everything else that happened that weekend, including the decision to stay up really late and not get any sleep that night, was all your new space phone directing you to save the world. Well, and, and mean, to sign on for a three-year contract. Yeah, and to sign on for a three-year contract. So in a way, Skypig, who also blots out the sun, is, is Skypig like, a Martian agent on Earth, or is Skypig a tulpa created by the human fear of Martian invasion of Earth? See, there you go. We're we're both on the tulpa plan now. Right. Well, I've always been on the tulpa. I was I was on tulpa plan when you were looking up tulpa. That's <laughs> I, I've I've always been pro tulpa. Okay. Well, as long as, as long as we're all uh, pro tulpa, so right. uh, Skypig. Yeah. The the the, the Skypig is who eats the the sun during the eclipse. I thought you. I thought you had science education in Canada, Robin. Um, I'm just uh, bringing up a children's story when I. Uh, oh, well, there's a story of sweetness and whimsy, ingenuity and, and uh, empathy. It's a book about yeah. plasticine, so that's obviously another deep cover. So there, there's a, a, a myth of a, a great being that comes and swallows the sun, and and it's uh, well, that's that's clearly the Martian invaders, and uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't trust the sky pig. The sky pig is an alien craft full of Purell. Right, and also uh, it sends rain. Which we don't like. Uh, no, it, and again, to blot out the uh, the solar panels and to wash away all those lovely bacteria. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that we've identified Sky Pig's Martian agenda. We've discovered that NASA, while perhaps operating outside the law, is operating within American interests, and we've discovered that cameras uh, steal your soul. So watch out with your new space phones, people. Right. Or if you want to join the fight against Mars, just uh, keep eating that uh, those ketchup and fries with your phone in hand. Exactly. You'll be scanned in and, and ready to join the fight in no time. And on that note, it's time for us to uh, join the fight against time and uh, pop out of this podcast. But a week later, we'll pop back in with yet another installment. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join the grifter-free company of such patrons as... Drew Eichholz. Daniel Callahan. Daniel Markwig. Derek McMullen. And Andrew Cowie. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>